Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of June 2019. Welcome to episode 49 of this podcast series as we boldly move into the fifth year of this monthly show. And the concept of the show is to just have a brief chat about what comics I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats, which should make this pretty much the books I read during June. These are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost them on my Facebook and Twitter, so you can find those. But those posts are not exactly spoilers for this podcast, since those are just lists. And here, there's a little more review, a little more critique, a little more discussion. But first, a little feedback. Luke Jack and Eddie wrote in about infamous Iron Man. After you finish the second volume, Victor's story moves back over to Invincible Iron Man as part of the Search for Tony Stark story that runs up to issue 600. Victor also plays a key supporting role in the revival of Marvel 2-in-1, paving the way for him to be part of the current Fantastic Four series. Because... As these stories demonstrate, Professor, the FF need Doom. But Doom doesn't need the FF. Preach it, Brother Luke. Preach it. Count Darren Sutherland added that it was a terrific episode. As you were talking about the many innovation titles, I started to think, how would you gotten into my collection? since I bought many of their books back in the day. Well, it was actually at uh, Gallifrey One. Countess Ruth thought maybe your collection was getting a little too big, slid me over a couple bagfuls of your old... Anyway, it's really probably something we shouldn't discuss here, but anyway. (laughs) I wish. Oh, I wish. Well, I'm glad that you two, Darren, picked those up, and uh, I'm sure... I'm positive if you check your collection, they might still be there. Just saying. Karen, from Between the Pages, where pop culture and food meet, congratulated me on four years of the show. Such a great podcast. Thank you, Karen. Very sweet of you. Such a great podcast listener. We heard again from Trevor Williams, who was not a fan of releasing episodes on the last day of the month in question. Okay, I realize this OCD is my problem and not yours, and I'm working on coming to terms with this too early posting habit. In my mind, by releasing the episode on this day, say May 31st, the last day of the month in question, you are doing one of two things. You're either promising to not read any comics today, thereby making this post true, or if you are going to read today... You're going to create episode 48.now or 48.1 to cover the additions. On the first part, not reading comics on May 31st, well, my lawyer, regular guest on the network, Paul Spatero, has advised me to exercise my Fifth Amendment rights to silence while answering questions that may tend to incriminate myself. And on the second part, point one or point now episodes, 
I'm putting that idea on the back burner. Maybe for later use. And the Facebook page, We Love Comic Books, shared the episode, adding that they love the Relatively Geeky Network. Well, thank you. We love comic books. We love you, too. The last episode received social media love from Clinton, from Coffee and Comics, Bill Bear from the Bat Pod, the Duchess and Duke of the Sutherlands from Warlord Worlds, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Sean from the Nerdy Dads podcast, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Chris Ouellette, Gene Hendricks from the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, Pat Sampson from the Longbox Crusade, Ed Moore from Teal Productions, the excellent Comics in the Golden Age podcast, and Derek William Crabb from the Fanholes podcast. Thanks for the supports, everybody. And now, on to the books I read during June. As I do on this show, I'm categorizing the books that I read, and first are issues that I read specifically for podcast appearances. We call those the homework books. And for Quarterman 136, I read Queen and Country, 19 and 20. And for content to prep for that episode, I also read 16 and 18 from earlier in that same storyline. And for Quarterman 137, I read Time Warp number 1. And for 138, I read Star Wars Tales from Mos Eisley, a Dark Horse one-shot. Yes, I am spending part of my summer vacation trying to get ahead on some recording. And I read the miniseries, War of the Realms, Journey into Mystery 1-5, through 5, which was written by the McElroys. And if you've ever heard any of my episodes with M, you know that they are a huge fan of the McElroys podcast, and so I'm certain that on an upcoming episode of something, M will talk about the series, and at that point I will add my two cents. Now, as a podcast follow-up, I read even more Queen and Country, 21 and 22, the start of the following arc. And at that point, it had really turned into a workplace drama in those issues. And despite how that might sound, it was still very interesting reading. And some more podcast follow-up reading. Because back a few months on The Quarterman, we talked about techno comics, reading issues of Gene Roddenberry, Isaac Asimov, and Neil Gaiman. I mean, there were other words in the titles of those comics, but those names, let's be honest, they were the ones that mattered. (laughs) But I knew that there were more techno books in the reading pile, so I went ahead and read Neil Gaiman's Lady Justice 1 and 2. I actually picked these up at the 50-cent bins at Pulp Reality. In this title, a wheelchair-bound woman named Janine is discovered by the Spirit of Justice and empowered to dispatch justice to any and all who deserve it. The crime that pushed her over the edge was the robbery of a blood bank that led to her family members dying, which is something I don't think I've seen before, robbing a blood bank, or certainly not often. And then she goes full Punisher when under the influence of justice, and Janine doesn't know how to feel about that. But at this part in the relationship, Justice is in charge, and Janine is just along for the ride. This is 
one of the few techno books that has been collected, so you can go out and actually find some Lady Justice for yourself if you're so inclined and want to see how that story progresses. And a gift from a few months back from Sir Iowa's Joe. I read a one-shot adventure, Technophage versus Xerus. These are the big powerhouses from the Mr. Hero slash Technophage world and from Leonard Nimoy's Primordials book. It's sort of a battle world thing, which is not the last time I'll mention battle world or a battle world scenario in this episode. The issue was quite good, by the way, with narration from both characters, getting their perspectives on the action and on the fights, so not too shabby. And a few issues that I think M picked up out of the quarter bins a few years ago, hoping to get a decent run, but not really accomplishing that. I read John Jake's Mulcon Empire 2, 4, and 6. Jake's is best known as the writer of generational sagas like North and South, and the Kent Family Chronicles, which were huge sellers in the 70s and 80s. In terms of literary cred and actual book sales, Jake's may have been the best get for techno comics, and unlike a few of the named creators, he was alive at the time the comics came out, and is still alive to this day. This series, which takes place in the 25th century, is about the Mulcon family, the first company slash corporation. Those lines between company and family are pretty blurred in the series. But they're the first one to make use of the commercial possibilities to be found in space. That founding was a few hundred years before, so we are multiple generations from that. So it is basically John Jake's Kent Family Chronicles, in space! It's okay, but not every character, not every storyline really grabbed me, and that is part of the problems with a multi-generational sprawling epic like this. And then on to new comics that we read right off the shelves. Adventures of the Super Sons 11. This is the penultimate issue, and things are definitely coming to a head the battle actually appears to come to an end as the boys escape their captivity and return home. Except they end up in a world of complete emptiness and whiteness about which John Kent admits, "Uh uh-oh, I think we really um, screwed up. And they have only one issue left to fix it all. Justice League Dark Eleven, the Lords of Order, have made an offer to save the world from magic, and all it's going to take is the removal of all magic and its memory thereof. But our heroes aren't ready to surrender just yet, and to fight that, some of them actually become Lords of Chaos. Wonder Woman 71 and 72, we are seriously winding down my run of issues on this title. I think I'm ending it at 74, because I'm pretty sure 75 is the kickoff to the next big thing, and I did want to jump off the title before we got to the next big thing. And this one, we see how some of the old world beings have been making it into our world, 
and after Atlantiades sets things right in the small town where they let everyone live out their deepest secrets, which cause some relationship issues, they join Wonder Woman and Maggie with the Magic Sword to close the portal, only to find another one leading to another world. And on to the general comic reading that I did. Nothing has been purchased or confirmed yet, but Raleigh Supercon may be the only con I'll be getting to this summer. One of the guests I'm looking forward to seeing there is JMS. So when I saw an issue of his in the dollar bins at Half Price Books, I had to pick up The Twilight Zone number 1 from Dynamite from 2014. The story here is of someone who needs to disappear, change their identity, etc. And he goes through an elaborate and expensive, and of course illegal, process to do that, including changing his fingerprints and voice and retinas and everything. And it all seems to be going well until he sees himself on TV, his old self on TV. Now, as it turns out, unfortunately, family and health situations will probably prevent me from attending Raleigh Supercon. Things happen, and M and I did get to Gallifrey 1 back in February, so I'm trying not to complain too much about that. One of the things I look for in the 50-cent boxes at Pulp Reality are expensive books, such as this one, originally priced at $5.99. It definitely grabbed my attention, and I picked up Marvel Legacy number one. And it wasn't bad. I haven't followed current Marvel for a while now. Just picking up a few books here and there that interest me simply based on the character. But the big picture of what was happening here, including what was happening with Legacy, I wasn't totally sure of. But I knew enough of the Marvel U, past, present, and future, to get a feel for what the book was doing or trying to do. And it wasn't bad. Then again, another big and expensive book I nabbed for 50 cents was one from an epic miniseries from 1991 with an original price of $4.50, Atomic Age, number three. Now, here's the problem. In any four-part story, the third part is often the most disposable, the most missable, the most skippable. But seeing, as this was the only one that I've read, I think it did an okay job of telling a story about aliens in 1957 and the cover-up that is totally falling apart. And I enjoyed this. Sometimes there's an advantage to not having to deal with setup or a conclusion, I suppose. And in any setting, it's pretty hard to find a 100-page Bronze Age book for any decent price. But fortunately, the copy of House of Mystery 226 that I found had a good-sized bite out of the top right corner, about one inch by two inch, which did cut a few words out per page. But it's the only way a book like this would ever be in a 50-cent box, and that's good enough for me. In terms of the 11 stories, a few were pretty good, although they did fall into some similar plot ideas or concepts. Ironic karma, be careful what you wish for, pride goes before a fall, etc. But overall, the editors did a pretty good job picking stories from the early 1950s on up, with a range of writers and artists represented. All in all, a good read, and even better, a good bargain. 
Similarly, Swamp Thing 6 from 1973 was falling apart. It looked like it had been stored in a swamp for a couple of decades. But I was able to get it for 50 cents and read it. Uh, At this point, it was still a standard monster comic. This one involved an entire town of clockwork people, complete with a mayor who created them all. Now, thanks to Google Maps, nowadays we can't believe that places like this could ever exist. Thanks, technology. And another book from Innovation, Power Factor Special. This one tricked me, because I'm used to these being extra-sized, and usually a comic with the word special on the title is bigger than normal. But no, this one had just 22 pages, and at 50 cents, it may not have been the best of deals, to my lasting shame. Maybe if I remember, I can pawn it off on Darren Sutherland. He seems to like these innovation titles. Anyway, (laughs) our good friend Dr. Anthony the Engineer sent some books in, and I read Actual Roger, number one, the start of a five-issue series from Alterna from last year. As you know, I like Alterna. I appreciate what they're trying to do to upend the comic book business model. In this series, our world's superest superhero, Magnanimo, is assigned a new sidekick because his prior ones have all, well, died. Unfortunately, the government assigns him Roger, who is a kid of about 10, who has developed the power to fly to fly about two feet off the ground. That's about it. It's more PR than anything else, but Magnanimo is not a fan of this scenario. It's a good idea, a good pitch, and a good start to a series. Dr. Anthony also sent The Skeptics, number one from Black Mask. I liked the setup for this issue, the pitch, and that is that during the Cold War, The Russians announce that they have citizens who've developed ESP and other paranormal powers. So President Rockefeller tasks a doctor to find allies with similar powers, and she finds two youngsters, an American girl and a British boy. But they are fakes. They are frauds. And the doctor knows this. She doesn't believe in powers and is assuming that the Soviets are faking. But keeping such a thing from the president? That's a bit of a risk. Now, not to be confused with Dr. Anthony, Dr. Ange sent a package a month or two back with some signed books from his hashtag secret project from a con he went to in March, including Superboy and the Ravers from 1996, signed by Paul Pelletier, who did art on both the cover and inside. It's kind of a weird series. Superboy hanging out at a never-ending rave called The Event Horizon, but that did sort of fit with this modern version of the character. The issue ends with the boy being arrested by something called Intercept, so that's got a dramatic ending. I really like the art. Pelletier did a very solid job with it, and I totally appreciate it. Dr. Ange getting this one signed for me. Very kind, buddy. Very kind. 
And going back from our MD to our PhD, back to Dr. Anthony, the engineer, he sent in a new 52 anthology book. One of the storylines from that, DC Universe Presents 9 through 11, featuring an incarcerated Vandal Savage helping his FBI agent daughter crack the case of a serial killer who is copycatting some of Savage's own gruesome kills. This is obviously James Robinson's take or homage to Silence of the Lambs with a family relationship instead of a romantic one between the agent and the killer. I mostly like this, and that family-father-daughter dynamic worked for me. The fact that people didn't believe that Savage was immortal, that kind of worked for me too. That was an interesting element. Dr. Anthony also sent The Highest House, number one, a magazine-sized book from IDW from 2018. This ran six issues eventually, and this one really sets the mood, sets the tone in a medieval-type setting. A scary-looking baron-type, the magister, visits a town to buy some slaves, including a boy named Moth. And at the end, we learn that, say it with me, things might not be exactly what they seem. It's an intriguing start to a series. And long-term friend of the network, Ron Sadowski, one of the very earliest members of the hashtag comic book circle of life, sent in Darkhold number six. It was the 90s. That's probably the most accurate and descriptive take I can give on this issue, which includes Doctor Strange, Modred, Agatha Harkness, and others in Marvel's magical pantheon. But it was so 90s, just so, so 90s. And from Mike Lane, Comics in the Golden Age, I read Thunderbolts, number four from 1997. There was some Doctor Doom in the background of this story, and it was Busiek and Bagley as the creative team, so there's a lot of potential in this issue, obviously. There are some wacky 90s-isms here as well, but the concept is strong, and the background of Doom-Asian Doomism, that's always a good thing. And the issue was good enough for not having much idea what was going on. Mike also sent Power Pack number 35, written by Louise Simonson from 1988, guest starring X-Factor. I've mentioned before that the X-Books, The Mutant World, is a bit of a blind spot for me. But I think I've read a few Power Packs, and I dig the concept, The Young Heroes. I'm a fan of DC's recent and current Super Sons titles. You've heard me talk about that. And I consider this to be Marvel's proto-version of that concept. And from Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, I read the first issue of a 2004 miniseries, Majestic. Number one, this is the character from the Wildstorm line, their Superman analog, dealing with living in the actual DCU and even having a nice long chat at the start of the issue with Superman himself. Their two different perspectives are very well laid out. You can see the compare and contrast. And even though we're supposed to be 
more on Superman's page, obviously, Abnett and Lanning do a good job of letting us sympathize with both views. And there is a mystery brewing, and there's drama coming. And Sir Iowa's Joe sent in some comics a while back, including Star Trek The Next Generation, Ill Wind, number two. The Enterprise is dispatched to be an official observer for the Federation Cup Space Yacht Series, where a dozen alien races test their space racing skills, and some of these races and aliens just plain don't like each other. It seems like a strange setup for a Star Trek story, because it is a strange setup for a Star Trek story. But I like sports. I like international sports. So I was able to put this into a context and just enjoy the story. And some kids' books that I read, some of which came from Sir Rob Lance, some from The Cheap Bins, some from Ron Zadowski, some from Michael Lane, and at least one from my brother-in-law, Phil. I read Sabrina the Teenage Witch 4, Archie 467, Woody Woodpecker 174, World of Archie 16, Richie Rich Millions 94, Date with Debbie 15, It's a Mystery Charlie Brown, and B&V Friends Double Digest 228. The Sabrina title was from the 1997 run when the Melissa Joan Hart TV show was on the air, and each of the covers in the series featured a photo of Hart interacting in some way with the cartoon characters on the cover, even though the internals of the book are just the standard Archie drawing style of the era and not in any way photo-referenced to the show. That is just the cover. But obviously, having her on the cover was a business decision, I imagine, a move to try to sell more copies. And that was the first issue I'd ever read of Date with Debbie. And I have to talk about the first story. Remember that this was 1971. But still, the premise is that Debbie helps her chubby friend lose weight. And she does. And then the friend goes on a date with Debbie's favorite fella. And then Debbie invites the formerly chubby friend over. And they don't fight because, you know, they're good buddies. But Debbie does have a kitchen full of desserts prepared for her friend to eat. Look, it was kind of funny. But it was the kind of kind of funny that hasn't been funny for many, many years. All right. Time to take a break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about the graphic novels, trade paperbacks, and long runs that I read in June. And we'll get to that right after this. Hey everybody, Magnus here. The hiatus is over and Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is back. And you know what else is back? Magnus talks about Smallville. My podcast, usual discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows, periodically gets put on hold so that I can go full fanboy on Smallville. Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history, and personally, 
It's my favorite live-action incarnation of Superman. And I'm not alone either, because listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. Now that the hiatus is over, I'm planning to continue my reappraisal of Smallville Phase 2 by taking a deep dive into the Sainted Season 7. Through the course of my discussion, I'll reveal why the Sainted Season 7 is my favorite season of Smallville's entire run, and I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, returning to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality in the summer of 2019. And listen for yourself about why Smallville in general and the Sainted Season 7 in particular are both awesome. Magnus talks about Smallville. Coming back soon to twotruefreaks.com. And we're back to talk about trades, long runs, miniseries, and related books that I read last month. And I was flipping through the to-read pile and found a bunch of disconnected issues from various versions of a particular popular sci-fi property and decided it would be fun to pull them together and give them a read. Starting with, from DC Comics from 1985, Star Trek Annual Number 1. This one is Mike W. Barr telling the story of Kirk's first days at the start of the five-year mission, a story involving Pike and Number One, as well as our standard big three of Bones, Spock, and Kirk. Good story, good characterization, pretty good extra-long comic story. Also from DC, from spring of 1984, I read Star Trek Special Number One, and this one firmly takes place in the movie universe, happening after a successful search for Spock. But the lead story features a comics-only character, a female antagonist, and romantic interest for Kirk, R.J. Blaze. It's a Peter David written story, and is fun and dramatic, and characterizes both Kirk and Bones pretty well. The backup story is a follow-up for Spock, still on Vulcan, dealing with the aftermath of his spirit and body reunion? And then from Marvel from 1998, I read Star Trek The Untold Voyages, number one, telling a story from the beginnings of the second five-year mission, good art, solid likenesses, and a good showdown between Kirk and Klingon Commander Krell. Solid comic. From the 50-cent boxes at Pulp Reality, I found the last two issues of a Marvel Edge series that featured that rarest of comic book characters, the super-powered college professor, Doc Samson, 3 and 4. Someone with many of the powers of the Hulk and also the insights of a professional psychiatrist ought to be a pretty interesting character. Some nuance and seriousness that that can bring to the comics is tempered, or at least balanced, in this issue by the combined forces of this being a Marvel Edge book, as well as just being from the 90s. The Punisher shows up for a few pages, at least long enough to make the cover on issue 3, 
But the series did end on a high note, with the last few panels of Doc shaking hands with a lady police officer that he's been dealing with and sliding her a piece of paper. No, it's not his phone number. It's his bill for professional services. I LOL'd at that one. Out loud, even. Now, one of the things I look for in the 50-cent boxes are oversized books, 52 pages, 60 pages, 80, even 100 pages if I could find them. And from the top of that box, without even flipping, a square-bound book stands out. It's instantly recognizable. And that is how I picked up Shadow Masters number one. According to the cover, this is the origin of the mysterious ninjas seen in the pages of Punisher titles. I've read so little Punisher that I hadn't heard of these folks, but I did like the post-World War II Japan setting of the story, and I like the way that story starts. So later in the month, when I saw the rest of the series, Shadow Masters 2 through 4 at another location, but also for 50 cents, I picked those up as well. I think this turned out to be a pretty good story, touching on all of the expected Japanese and ninja themes of honor and family and revenge. Basically, we have a Japanese brother and sister team, along with an American friend, and they take on a secret society that desires to take Japan back to its imperial glory before the end of the war. Good story, well delivered. Again, I don't know these characters from Punisher, but that didn't matter. It was a completely self-contained story and a pretty good one at that. I also grabbed the first three issues of a 90s Marvel series featuring a character I only sort of like by a writer I don't really like all that much. So, no, I can't really explain why I bought Fabian Nicienza's Nova 1 through 3, but they weren't that great. Even the guest appearance of Spider-Man in issue 3 couldn't make me like these any more than I did. I guess that's the risk with cheap boxes. They trick you into buying things you never would under better circumstances. Now, I've mentioned Pulp Reality, that that's in the city where I teach, and that's about 30 minutes from where I live. So I don't head in there all that often during the summer, but every three or four weeks, I stop by my office, check my mailbox, make whatever copies I need to, that sort of thing, and visit pulp reality. And last time, just a few weeks ago, I stopped by Drew's office for a comic chat. Drew, you remember, is a co-host on Comics for Fun and Profit, and he's also a colleague on my campus. So we were chatting, and I mentioned that I was heading to pulp shortly, and he decided to swing over as well. And here's the difference between me and Drew, and it explains the differences between our comic approaches. Obviously, I love cheap stuff and free stuff and quarter bins, while comics for fun and profit is all about the speculation game, flipping hot comics quickly, finding a way to earn a couple of bucks, five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks on reselling a comic. So different approaches, and we look for different things. So I had been in the store for about 20 minutes or so, digging around and finding some falling apart Bronze Age books and square bound this and giant size that, you know, my kinds of books. And then Drew wanders in. 
does a circle around the store and hones in on a couple of short boxes near the front of the store that I literally just walked by. Didn't even notice. And he starts flipping through, and he finds a run of signed comics. Kelly Sudakonic is the name that I remember most, but there were other real, legit names in there, too. Other creators on good quality, good condition books. And the thing is, that is so Drew. Paying 50 cents for books that he can probably eBay for 10, 20, or 30 bucks. I don't know how this works out, but we both hit the store at just about the same time, and we both managed to stay completely, totally, 100% on brand. Amazing. (laughs) I've talked about reading a few issues from a few versions of Golden Age-related titles, and I found some more issues to read. And I started with Justice Inc. book number one, Trust, a 48-page square-bound book, part of a two-part series from 1989 from D.C. It's an interesting story, but Kyle Baker's art is so unusual that I struggled to connect with it. Not that it was bad, but it was experimental, trying to do something different with a mature reader's book in a more expensive format. And it really just wasn't for me. But that did lead me to Hoopla, where I found a miniseries version of Justice Inc. 1-6 through from Dynamite from 2016, a series which brought together The Avenger, The Shadow, and Doc Savage to save the world and the timeline from very, very bad people. I liked that this took three heroes with actually quite different ideologies and methodologies and just threw them all together. There isn't a leader to this group. Their team-up is purely pragmatic, and I love that. Nobody has a conversion experience and recants their views about whether they should kill or not, what justice really means. No. They get the job done. They appreciate the efforts of the others. And at the end of the day, after, spoilers, saving the world, they don't depart as besties. And I love that. A few years ago, I picked up some Marvel UK books from the 1990s, back when World's Greatest Comics put their 25-cent books on sale for a dime each. I read some last year, and I grabbed another miniseries last month, and read Battle Tide 1 through 4. This is some early work from Abnett and Lanning, but there really isn't much to the story. It's a standard battle planet type of story, a battle world scenario, with Psylocke and Wolverine and Hercules and Sabretooth and others transplanted to a distant planet in a fight to the death against the current champion, which is a setup we've only seen a billion times before. And this version of it was not great. A couple of years ago, I picked up a two-issue mini from Giffen and Demetrius called Planetary Brigade, which was a good read. And I learned that it was part of a bigger universe with series originally published by Atomic Comics and then Boom. Planetary Brigade was published after, but it was a prequel, so it sort of worked chronologically in terms of how I ended up reading these. And then last year, I picked up 
for cheap at Ollie's a trade from that world. And then I filled in the ones I didn't have from Hoopla. So all in all, I ended up reading everything. Hero Squared, Extra Size Special, Hero Squared Volume 1, 1 through 3, Volume 2, 1 through 6, The Mini Love and Death, 1 through 3, and then another prequel series, Planetary Brigade Origins, 1 through 3. The premise is that in our universe, Milo is just a slacker with a way hotter than he deserves girlfriend. But in a parallel world, he is the legendary Captain Valor. And his girlfriend, Steffi, is his arch-nemesis, Caligness. And of course, it was the Giffen de Mateus humor, such as on the cover of Exercised Special, which is spelled X-T-R-A, and the cover explains this simply. Putting an X on a cover couldn't hurt, right? I've got a feeling that very few people are familiar with this title. Maybe just Shag, as a matter of fact. But it's really good. Yes, it's a takedown of comic book tropes, a deconstruction of the heroic genre, but the strength of the characters, the love quadrilateral, and the humor all make that much more palatable. Because, let's be honest, superhero deconstructions can be a little morose, a little navel-gazing, a little introspective. And this one has some of that. But it's also adventurous, funny, poignant, and just really good. The prequel series, Planetary Brigade, which told the story of a super team of that universe, including Captain Valor, that gave Giffen and Demetrius a chance to work on Justice League analogs, but not just as a workplace drama, but more of an exaggerated version of a classic superhero story. All of these stories were good. The understandings of comics history is evident, the comics fandom, and again, of course, there was enough humor in just the right places that I think it all worked really well. Now, I knew that the reading stack had some 70s high adventure tales from Gold Key and Whitman, a couple of different series, and I picked up a few more recently and decided to read them all. So between Pulp Reality, Journey into Mystery, and Carolina, comics, and more, I ended up reading Dagar the Invincible 5, 10, and 19, and The Mighty Samson 27 and 32. Dagar was mostly a Conan knockoff, but there were a few distinctive bits. Issue 10 took place in a jungle setting, for example. That was totally unexpected. Of course, that meant that for that issue, it was a Tarzan knockoff. But the biggest difference was that while Conan had a number of uh, lady friends throughout his history, Dagar has a one true love, the lovely Graylin. So he's more of the classic romantic hero who, in one issue, crosses a boundary of time itself to find the love of his life. But still, for the most part, Dagar was a watered-down Conan knockoff. Mighty Samson was a post-apocalyptic story about a strong man and his crew battling a bunch of nuclear-mutated super-beasts. There wasn't much to make this stand out, though. It was kind of meh. Now, I grabbed off the bookshelves recently a couple of trades that were sent in by 
I'm pretty sure it was Sir Rob Lance, the generous Canadian. And these told a really interesting story. This is The Midas Flesh from Boombox from 2014. We all know the story of the king who asks for one wish. The ability to turn anything that he touches to gold. Now in this version, anything the gold touches is also turned to gold, meaning that in very short order, like days, the entire earth is turned to gold and everything on it dies. Think about the archaeological preserve that is, say, Vesuvius. Only put that on a global scale. And then fast forward thousands of years where the evil Galactic Federation, sorry, Star Trek, has removed the location of Earth from its records because, as you would expect, it's a very, very dangerous place to visit because it still possesses that power, the Midas touch. Well, a plucky band of rebels do find the planet, discover the secret, discover the remains of Midas himself, and manage to nab enough of his body, a finger, to make it a weapon, the Midas flesh. A weapon strong enough, perhaps, to bring down the evil Federation. Mm, Sorry, Star Trek. This is a great high concept, and delivered with characters that are interesting and a plot that moves really fast. The art is a little cartoony, kid-like, but the story itself is a little bit more mature than that. Really enjoyable, and we do get an ending, which does involve a deus ex machina, but the beginning of the story did entail gods, so that's all right. I also picked up a trade of a comic series I've been revisiting every month over the summer, Plan to read one trade each month to get closer to being caught up. And this month it was The Walking Dead 163 to 168. We have the community facing down a huge crew of walkers coming at them in the aftermath of the Whisper War. Rick and Negan spend some quality time together. And in the heat of that battle, they even do each other a few solids. But the key to this trade is the death of a major character. Skip ahead 15 seconds if you don't want to be spoiled on a comic from two years ago. It was Andrea. And as we remember from the early issues after the events in issue 48, that Rick doesn't deal with death all that well in terms of him keeping his, uh, what do you call it, sanity. So that will be something I'll be looking to see in the next trade or two. What the effect is. Rick also himself has killed Sherry, and her people plum don't like that. They end in a bit of a truce, thanks to Negan, actually. But again, that is a we-shall-see situation. And from Hoopla, I read the second volume of a series from Dynamite that I read just the first three issues of back in March, when Dr. Anthony the Engineer was kind enough to send them in Hoopla didn't have the rest of that first trade, so I did end up missing a few issues when I read Miss Fury, 7 through 11. We have a Catwoman type of adventuring character, sometimes a thief, sometimes a heroine, caught up in a time warp of sorts that tosses her through time and through dimensions, including a wide variety of 1940s causing her to go up against a lot of Nazi bad guys, or maybe just the same Nazi bad guys over and over again. 
In this volume, she runs across a crazy, violent, murderess version of herself. A version of herself who never fell in love with Matthew Chandler, whose death in her world drove her to heroism. And seeing this version of herself, the worst of what she could be, and letting the death of her own Matthew drive her another way, she ends up becoming an assassin, working for some pretty shady people. But due to the nature of time travel stories and alternative realities, she's able to see the consequences of her action, even learn from her own mistakes, or at least learn from the mistakes of other versions of herself. And because it's time travel and parallel universes, Miss Fury, spoilers, does manage to find a world where she can have a happy ending. I also read the follow-up series from a few years later, Miss Fury, The Minor Key, 1-5. through This one brings in ghosts and demons and other similarly fantastical elements to the world, but we also get Miss Fury as an engineer, which was not part of the backstory before, I don't think. So it's a different style of storytelling, for sure, different type of story. But it was a good and enjoyable one. Again, I like that these are interesting takes on the Golden Age adventurous story with a very modern spin. Also from Hoopla, I picked up the next trade, the third, I think, in a series I've really dug. Rivers of London, Black Mold, 1 through 5. You can tell it's put out by Brits, Titan Comics in this case, because they put a U in the middle of mold. And that is what this story is about, the domestic atmospheric issue of mold, black mold. Just that in this particular case, that mold has, you know, pseudo-psychic powers, the ability to make you manifest your worst fears. But our detective-slash-wizard, Peter Grant, is on the case, along with his partner, Gulid, and they manage to follow the leads to jazz musicians, property developers, and voodoo ladies and end up cracking the case. I like that this was a small-scale case, a legitimate, realistic case that would land in the laps of the police, and if you had a detective who was also a wizard, it would land in their section. This is a strange series, Rivers of London, but this is another volume that I quite enjoyed. Now, in doing a little investigation, I learned that Benaranovich actually put out some novels before moving this storyline into comics and being the crazy completionist that I am, I think I'm going to have to stop reading the comics until I'm able to go back and read those novels. It's sort of that queen and country circumstance. But I will keep you posted. I also read a miniseries based on one of my favorite recent TV shows, The Librarians, 1 through 4 about a team of relic hunters, maybe relic protectors. This one tells a story that felt like it could have been an episode of the show. We have a director of B-movie schlock films about Bigfoot and ancient aliens, and he's murdered at a film festival killed by a stake made out of a piece of Noah's Ark, of all things. But he may not be totally dead, and the guy who killed him may not be... Well, that part would be a spoiler. It's a pretty wild story, again, appropriate for the property with pretty decent characterization. And with a licensed property, we have to mention the likenesses. 
And here, not bad, especially the two female leads, Cassandra and Baird. But the three fellas? Sometimes they looked a bit too much like each other. But most of the time, I could pretty much tell everyone apart just fine. And from the aforementioned Dr. Anthony the Engineer read, The Mysterious Strangers 1-3, through which was an Oni Press series that ran a total of six issues. And one of the things I liked about this was that it was made up of three two-issue stories. They weren't interrelated, but you could read them two at a time and get a full story. That's always good. This was basically a team of strangely-powered troubleshooters solving equally strangely-powered crises. Like that time that the Beatles played a concert in such a way as to open our world to beings from another dimension. You remember that. So it's stories like that. It was a fun read. Also from Hoopla, I pushed forward with a recent trade from the current DC run, Detective Comics 988 to 993. And in this one, James Robinson gives us a storyline involving Two-Face, or maybe involving Harvey Dent, or maybe involving both. With him, it can be a little confusing. Appealing to his good side, to the Harvey Dent side, Batman and Commissioner Gordon find themselves allying with their old friend in order to take down the Cobra cult. That's the old-fashioned Cobra with a K, those guys from the 70s. In the culmination of that, Two-Face dies, and Harvey Dent has a nice funeral, and many people say very nice things about him. That's a nice touch, a nice ending for the man, a chance to be remembered as the crusading DA working with Bats and Gordon to clean up Gotham. It was a really nice bit, and I was glad to see that remembrance of the man he was before he became Two-Face. And then, well, I don't want to spoil this, so I'll whisper it, Two-Face isn't really dead. That was all part of the plan. So, of course, at some point, that will never come back to haunt Gotham, Gordon, or Batman. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of the month, Rivers of London continues to be good. Adventures of the Super Sons is really barreling towards its conclusion in a really strong fashion. Of course, Queen and Country is terrific. Miss Fury was fun. I like that first issue of JMS's Twilight Zone. But in terms of what I thought was the best read, I'm going to have to go for the Giffen Demetrius story, where the two versions of Milo and the two versions of Steffi hash things out with their therapist. That is in Hero Squared Love and Death number two. It's an issue that's funny, serious, and plot advancing. Everything you want in a story. Next month, I'm going to knock out another Walking Dead trade, I hope. Probably read another Marvel UK mini. And I recently brought some Spider-Woman issues that look interesting, so I hope to get to those. But whatever I do end up reading, I will be here to talk about the comics I read in July. And that episode ought to be out sometime in early August. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of these comics that I've mentioned, especially if you've read any of them. You can send that feedback via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com. Or as a comment on the Facebook and blog post for this episode, the blog is at 
relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening, and keep the pages turning.